Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Melissa Held. I am a pediatric infectious disease specialist at Connecticut Children's. I'm also the Associate Dean for Student Affairs at the UConn School of Medicine. And I'm really excited to talk to you today on this podcast about treatments for common outpatient pediatric infectious diseases. So just given what we are all dealing with right now, I figured I would start with our a surge of respiratory viruses that we have really seen rising since over the summer, um, you know, especially RSV. Obviously, we've heard a lot about that in the media, but we're also starting to see influenza rates starting to rise. And of course, we still have um, several COVID variants circulating. So we are really in the midst of uh, what is probably going to be an extremely difficult <clears throat> respiratory virus season. And we have all these other viruses that are interplaying as well, enterovirus D68, parainfluenza, and rhinovirus. So what makes this so difficult is that there, uh, there's a lot of overlap between symptoms, right? So we have cough, fever, rhinorrhea. So I want, wanted to just take a moment to try to distinguish some of the main viruses that I wanted to talk about today. So RSV, um, influenza and COVID, um, although it is extremely difficult to clinically distinguish them all. So RSV typically affects infants and young children under two years of age. And what we used to see is that the season for RSV would start in the late fall. It would go through the winter months. But now with the COVID effect, we're calling it the COVID effect, where there's been a lot of uh, distancing and masking, it's really shifted the season of RSV. And we started to see a lot of cases over this past summer. Um, it increased through the fall. And we're actually seeing um, quite a number of RSV cases, both outpatient and inpatient. Um, as many of you may remember, the risk factors for more severe disease with RSV include prematurity, so a gestational age less than 37 weeks, overall young age less than 12 weeks of age, and any underlying chronic illness or cardiopulmonary disease. Um, the pathophysiology is really quite interesting. It's viral invasion of respiratory mucosal epithelial cells, and this really leads to direct damage and inflammation of the small airways. And then we get that edema and excessive mucus in the small airways that leads to a lot of the cough, um, the wheezing, and difficulty breathing. Symptoms typically will peak on around day three to six, although we certainly have seen more prolonged illnesses uh, this past season and, and really just more severe disease overall. The symptoms can really range. Uh, usually there's a fever, typically it's low grade, sometimes children are even afebrile, and then the respiratory symptoms, of course, are the most prominent. So cough, wheeze, noisy breathing, you can have croup-like symptoms, uh, also congestion, rhinorrhea, increased work of breathing, and tachypnea. In very young infants, we will often see poor feeding because babies are obligate nose breathers. And so when you get that congestion, they really are starting to mouth breathe a little bit. And then, of course, when you try to feed them, they have quite a lot of difficulty. You may see retractions with their breathing. So that's the sort of ribs. You see them breathing around their ribs and sort of nasal flaring. Um, and you can even see these apneic episodes where they stop breathing for very short periods of time. With RSVGI, symptoms are much less common. You may see some post-tussive vomiting, but overall vomiting and diarrhea are, are pretty um, uncommon. 
if you hear what we call a staccato cough, so it's kind of like that gunfire cough, um, or in conjunction with conjunctivitis, you want to think about something like chlamydia trachomatis pneumonia. So how do we make the diagnosis of RSV? Well, you know, this time of year, bronchiolitis, again, could be caused by any virus. Primarily, it is RSV. So clinically, you can generally guess the diagnosis. But uh, to be sure, we would use RT-PCR. Uh, we also have antigen detection tests that are really effective. Um, and the RSV sensitivity of antigen detection tests generally ranges from 80 to 90% in this age group. So really quite good. With treatment though, um, you know, it's really supportive treatment. So fluids, many of these kids become hospitalized because they're not feeding well, um, and oxygen, if their oxygen saturations are really below 91, 92%. So how do we compare that to COVID? So this the COVID onset is a little bit slower than we would see, let's say in, in something like influenza, which really comes on more acutely. We do see fevers, but sometimes kids will be afebrile. In our older kids, we still sometimes see the loss of taste and smell. They can have a cough, they can have a sore throat, body aches, malaise. And the treatments actually are becoming better. We do have Pexlovid available for children over the age of 12 and weight over 40 kilograms, and those who are at high risk of progression to severe COVID-19, including hospitalization. We are starting to see some studies. We're going to be engaging in one at Connecticut Children's with the use of Pexlovid under age 12 for, for um some of our children who are at high risk for progression to severe disease, um, but we haven't quite gotten that going yet, so more to come on that one. And how about influenza? Well, we usually see more rapid onset of symptoms with influenza. Fever is much more common, sore throat, cough, body aches and malaise, and more GI symptoms. So when do we treat with influenza? Well, really any age patient with severe progressive illness, especially those who are at high risk of progression. So those children with chronic medical conditions, those who are immunocompromised, um, children under the age of two. Um, other considerations for treatment would include having the illness less than two days before they present to you. Symptomatic patients with household contacts who are at high risk of complications or developing complications. Um, so really, we have also Tamivir or Tamiflu, which is our mainstay of treatment. There's really no other antivirals that are um, particularly helpful right now for influenza, but we always hope that there's more medications that are on the horizon for us. So the big question we get this time of year when there's so much overlap between these respiratory viruses is when to test, when not to test. You know, I think a good first start these days is to test for COVID, right? It, these tests are readily available, and that is really the one that we are um, the most worried about spreading to other members of our community, especially those who may be at higher risk for complications. And I would say that influenza is probably a good second step. Um, again, our biggest concern is to make sure that these patients are not spreading the viruses to others. So an infant who might be able to be home cared for does not need to be hospitalized for any reason. Do you have to test for, for RSV? You really don't. You know, again, you can make the diagnosis clinically for RSV in particular for bronchiolitis from most of our viral causes. There is no treatment. So we really want to just provide that supportive care and make sure that we're doing 
good caution, cautionary measures to prevent spread. So let's talk about what might happen if we have pneumonia. So pneumonia from viral causes is the most common in children. Um, viral pneumonia is really far more common than bacterial causes of pneumonia, but we can see bacterial superinfections following a viral respiratory infection. What you might see clinically is that there might be some improvement and then some worsening or, or overall worsening symptoms over the course of time. So fever would be prominent, crackles or rawls on exam, or you have focal findings if you obtain a chest x-ray. And regardless of vaccination rates, strep pneumo is still our number one cause of community-acquired pneumonia. Um, and that's despite our use of Prevnar, which has many of the uh, uh, vaccine, the vaccine contains many of our invasive strep pneumo strains, but there's nearly a hundred strains of strep pneumo. And so the most common ones that we're causing invasive disease are in our Prevnar vaccination, but now, you know, there's some non-vaccine types that can still cause uh, bacterial pneumonia. Other possible pathogens to think about, as I mentioned, chlamydia trachomatis infection in infants under three months of age. That's very typically an afebrile child or very low grade fever with that staccato cough. And then the chest x-ray on, on those patients is really pretty interesting. You have bilateral infiltrates. It really looks much worse than even the patient might look. And there's my cough. Um, you can see some atypical pathogens in children over age five, so mycoplasma. These children often have subacute presentations, interstitial, usually bilateral infiltrates, or maybe you've tried some anti-pneumococcal therapy with antibiotics and they have failed that because those are going to require one of our macrolides like azithromycin. <clears throat> If you see worse disease, so loculations, large effusions, or even necrotizing disease, you're going to want to start to think about Staph aureus, and usually those patients are going to acquire inpatient admission. Haemophilus influenza type B used to be a very common cause of community-acquired pneumonia back when we didn't have great immunization rates, but you still will want to think about that if you have an unimmunized or under-immunized child. So let's just talk briefly about treatment. So for mild outpatient pneumonia, so those are patients without any oxygen requirement, able to take oral medications, no respiratory distress. Amoxicillin, 90 milligrams per kilogram per day divided three times daily is really our drug of choice. You can consider a third generation cephalosporin like ceftonir, which would be 14 milligrams per kilogram per day divided twice daily. But again, these are more uh, broad antibiotics, which is usually not necessary. You might want to consider that or something like amoxicillin clavulonic acid or augmentin if they have a history of frequent infections, frequent antibiotic use, um, or recent antibiotic use. And for uncomplicated outpatient pneumonia, seven days is really the duration of treatment that's recommended. Okay, so now let's switch gears to another very common outpatient uh, uh, infection that we see, which is urinary tract infections. It's much more common in boys than in girls in infancy, about three to 4% in, in boys and 1% in girls, but then it switches to become more common in girls after that age, really rising to 3% in girls. 
So in our um, older infants and young children, the most important risk factors are female sex or an uncircumcised infant boy, younger age, a history of high-grade vesicoureteral reflux, any instrumentation of the urinary tract, particularly if they've had any sort of indwelling catheterization. And then in other older children, we can see some other risk factors, which might include the presence of kidney stones, a history of VUR if they're currently toilet training, again, lack of circumcision, and then sexual activity or diabetes, other underlying medical issues. So an, an administration of an antibiotic <clears throat> may actually increase the risk of UTI by changing the microflora. Um, so we want to be very judicious in our use of antibiotics when we have patients present with a potential UTI. Um, you know, the diagnosis in older kids is really made by history and physical exam. But in young children, it can be very, very difficult. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So what about the acceptable colony count? And this has shifted a little bit over time. But a urine culture positive for a urinary tract infection really depends on the collection method. So it's 50,000 colony forming units per ml for samples obtained by catheterization and 100,000 for samples obtained by clean catch. And although we don't really do it anymore, 1,000 CFU per ml on samples obtained by suprapubic aspiration. Blood tests are really not routinely needed. So CBC, electrolytes, including creatinine, um, you know, typically are not routinely needed. <clears throat> Most of these infections are due to ascending bacterial involvement. The bacteria causes a cystitis that can then ascent to the kidney to cause pyelonephritis in more severe cases. And our most common organisms continue to be E. coli, especially for first-time urinary tract infections. Other gram-negatives that we can see include Klebsiella and Proteus. Other causes, Enterococcus, Pseudomonas, and then in our young sexually active females, Staphylococcus saprophyticus. <clears throat> so just a, just a comment about some of the common errors we see in the diagnosis of UTIs. You know, it's usually because of a contaminated urine specimen. Um, bag urine specimens really often will have uh, contamin rate, contamination rates as high as 80%, which is why in our very young infants, we prefer catheterization. If you see squamous epithelial cells on your urinalysis, or really an insignificant bacterial count, or the presence of multiple pathogens on your urine culture, especially in a midstream urine specimen, these are all suggestive of contamination. Um, as I mentioned, the urinary tract infection symptoms vary with age. Our neonates may just have fever alone, some irritability, feeding problems, um, and our newborns can see a hyperbilirubinemia, a direct hyperbilly. In our one-month-old to two-year-olds, we can have fever, feeding problems, diarrhea, vomiting. And over two years of age, we may see more classic symptoms and signs. So the urgency, dysuria, frequency, abdominal pain, vomiting, and back pain. So how about treatment? So it really should be guided by local resistant patterns of uropathogens. So knowing what is circulating and what is common in your community is very important. So most of our pathogens right now are sensitive to our third generation cephalosporins, um, but in children who are not particularly ill, who are not febrile, who have good follow-up, it's very reasonable to start with a first generation cephalosporin like cephalexin. Bactrim, which is trimethoprim cephalomethoxazole or nitrofurantoin. 
Most of our uropathogens are resistant to amoxicillin. There's 60% or greater in some of our E. coli. And so we avoid the use of amoxicillin. And most of our children, especially over the age of two months, can safely be managed with oral antibiotics. So we really don't need to hospitalize these, ch these children and really, if, unless they're able to, unable to tolerate oral, or oral antimicrobials. If the fevers, if there are fevers haven't resolved, your symptoms haven't resolved within a couple of days, you wanna reevaluate the diagnosis and just make sure whether you need an ultrasound or um, any other imaging. <clears throat> And you wanna to try to start antibiotic treatments as quickly as possible because delayed treatment can increase the risk of renal scarring. Usually our duration is five to seven days. Um, you can do as long as seven to 10 days for uncomplicated febrile UTIs. Um, but, you know, especially in our young infants, we'll do at least seven days. And in terms of imaging, we often will recommend a renal ultrasound after a first time UTI, um, especially for infants in the two months to two years of age, especially febrile UTIs. And this is from the 2011 AAP guidelines, and these have been updated. Um, we wanna make sure that we wait until the children are better so that we don't see anything that's um, confusing on our ultrasound. So in our last few minutes, I just want to touch upon some skin and soft tissue infections that you might see in the office. Um, most of these are typically staph aureus or strep species. If you have the ability to get a culture of the fluid or the purulent material, this is really most helpful in narrowing antibiotic coverage. Simple skin swabs are not helpful because you can get lots of skin flora contamination. If you see a cluster of small vesicles, you also want to think about herpes simplex, HSV, and you can send those vesicles for PCR testing. Um, just a, mo a moment about MRSA. So it's a significant cause of both healthcare and community-acquired infections. And for our small or sim simple abscesses or boils, incision and drainage alone is actually likely to be quite adequate. You don't really need oral antibiotics unless the abscess is on the face, the hands, feet, or in the perineum. <clears throat> Any purulent cellulitis, so this is cellulitis with purulent drainage or exudate in the absence of a drainable foci, should really consider starting empiric treatment for community-acquired MRSA. Purulent cellulitis is more likely to be staph and non-purulent cellulitis is most likely to be group A strep, but you know, these are not 100% hard fast rules. Um, our, oral, our oral antibiotic options for MRSA coverage include Bactrim, our tetracyclines like doxycycline, clindamycin, and linazolid. If you wanna have group A strep coverage, clindamycin alone would adequately cover both. Um, again, this is where fluid culture can come in handy because we do see a certain percentage, about 15 to 20% of MRSA and SSA um, resistance to clindamycin. Another option is to use Bactrim or doxycycline plus a beta-lactam like amoxicillin or cephalexin. So another just note about periorbital and preceptal cellulitis, which was a request from a friend that I include this in the podcast. You know, clinical signs and history really can help distinguish periorbital cellulitis from orbital cellulitis. With periorbital preceptal infection, you see erythema, induration, and tenderness of the periorbital tissue, but rarely there's systemic illness signs. Orbital cellulitis can look similar, but you also will see much more 
um, in the way of proptosis, edema of the conjunctiva, pain with uh, their vision or ophthalmoplasia or decreased visual activity. And a lot of times the eyelids are swollen shut. And so getting a CT scan with contrast really may be necessary to confirm the diagnosis. And you'll, you'll often see nearby sinusitis. Um, for, for preceptal or periorbital cellulitis, our common pathogens are strep pneumo, non-typable H flu, so Hib is very rare now, and Staph aureus. So using cephalexin, clindamycin, amoxclav, or ceftonir plus clindamycin are some of your options. There's a lot of different options. Certainly, if you're concerned about orbital cellulitis, this is going to require IV antibiotics, such as ampicillin. So overall, just a note that the appropriate use of antibiotics is really important. It prevents unnecessary adverse effects. It prevents emergence of drug-resistant organisms. And overall, we always say you want to use the right drug for the right bug. And although this was a really quick overview, if you'd like to do more reading, some of the references I would recommend, there's a great article in pediatrics. It's also found on the AAP website about the contemporary management of urinary tract infections in children. This is from the February 2021 issue. We have a number of really wonderful clinical pathways on our Connecticut Children website, which I utilized in this talk. And there's a great American Family Physicians AAFP 2003 article by Richard Sadovsky on uh, skin and soft tissue infections. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast about some of the common things we see in the outpatient setting. It is by no means inclusive, so much more to talk about, but I look forward to talking to you again at a later date. Have a great holiday.